Welcome to the EODV podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Sarah Walsh is joined by Dr. Ophelia Dadzi, consultant dermatologist and dermatopathologist who has extensive research experience in the field of dermatology, especially in relation to skin diversity. Her most recent work being the development of a new skin colour classification scale to describe the full spectrum of human skin colour. Together, they delve into the topic of human cutaneous diversity and discuss how Western dermatology developed and primarily focused on people with lightly pigmented skin. However, dermatologists today are dealing with a diverse population with different skin pigmentation levels. They emphasise the need to rethink the language used in dermatology to better serve the diverse population they treat. But before we get into it... Get ready to experience cutting-edge science and innovation in dermatology and virology at the upcoming EDV Congress in Berlin, Germany, 11th-14th of October 2023. The ADV Congress is one of the largest and prestigious international gatherings dedicated to dermatology and venerology, providing a platform for the brightest minds in research, clinicians, and top industry professionals to come together and share knowledge, make connections, and foster scientific collaboration. The diverse, interactive program covering the full AZ of hot topics also includes innovative, hands-on workshops, subspecialty sessions, and industry sessions. The exhibition hall will provide opportunities for attendees to explore the latest technologies, treatments, and products in the field to date. The wait is over. Tickets to attend the Congress in Berlin are on sale now. Be sure to check edvcongress2023.org to learn how to participate and for more information about the event. Did you know that GADV Clinical Practice has an open call for papers on skin diversity? With a patient-focused approach, EADB's Open Access Journal aims to address the underrepresentation of skin of color in dermatology practice and research. We welcome a wide range of submissions for this special issue, including original and review articles, case reports, and more. Submit your proposal to GAEACP at EADB.org by the 31st of July. Final manuscript submissions are due by the 30th of November 2023. Don't miss this opportunity to contribute to the representation of all patient populations. Find out more on eadv.org. This podcast is a must-listen, particularly as it discusses the importance of diversity in dermatology. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this episode of the EADV podcast. My name is Sarah Walsh. I'm a dermatologist in London, and I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by Dr. Ophelia Datsi, who is a dermatologist and dermatopathologist uh, here in London also. Now, I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Datsi today because she has become a leading light and an expert in the field of human cutaneous diversity and really has shed a lot of light on this previously neglected area. Um, she lectures frequently on the topic and also serves as the lead for the Dermatological Lexicon Group for the British Association of Dermatologists, which to my knowledge is um, a, a unique group of people trying to forward um, and advance this area. This group recently proposed a novel human skin colour classification system, the Eumelanin Human Skin Colour Scale. So welcome, Ophelia. Um, I've had the advantage of reading your professional biography, and I know that you wear a lot of different hats, uh, which I've tried to summarise there, but probably uh, not very effectively. So before we get on to the topic of today's podcast around skin phototypes, I was wondering if you could just describe briefly to our listeners a little bit about your professional week at work, so your clinics, special clinics, and your education and leadership roles. 
Thank you very much, Sarah and the EADV for having me here today. Um, indeed, I'm involved with quite a few things, but I would say that really it involves the use of the same skill set. So it's effectively cross-pollination and it's all along the lines of cutaneous diversity. So first and foremost, I'm a clinician and that is always has always been my priority. So I work for the National Health Service. I run a specialist um, um, ethnic skin and hair clinic, which is effectively focused on cutaneous diversity. I do that twice a week and it's a specialist tertiary referral clinic. So I see patients who are referred by other dermatologists. You know, there might be issues with diagnosis or management and I see them and offer my opinions on the, on the patients. So this is primarily for the NHS. I also do run a private clinic. I'm a dermatopathologist, as you mentioned, and up until November last year, I also used to work for the Skin Pathology Lab for a major national um, health service um, institution. I don't do that anymore because of my other caring responsibilities. But during that time, I used to lead the skin pathology lab. Um, and then the other issues are really pertaining to research, again, focused on cutaneous diversity. So a lot of the work that I'm doing through the dermatological lexicon group of the British Association of Dermatologists, for which we're going to touch on the eumelanin human skin color scale here, but also in terms of research, um, I've been working with cosmetic chemists to actually develop um, hair care products, particularly for people of African ancestry. So that's something else that is ongoing. And then finally, education. And again, this is on the lines of cutaneous diversity. Um, I used to work with universities here in the UK, but now primarily mostly postgraduate education. So this is at um, local and also international levels teaching dermatologists, but also non-dermatologists. So for instance, trichologists, again, along the lines of cutaneous diversity. Gosh, it's that, you, you clearly have very busy professional weeks. <laughs> so, and I, you know, I do think that's, uh, you've always been incredibly generous with your expertise. I, I know that from all your, your, your educational commitments, which is uh, wonderful for the rest of us to benefit from. And, uh, you know, I'm really interested in the use of this word, lexicon um you know th discussions around around language because in order to have a discussion about skin phenotypes we need to have the language to do it and uh, you know this is an aspect of your research work which i find really really interesting because i think in dermatology we can be quite um lazy in our descriptive terms and i think we tend to fall back on very stock phrases that we heard our predecessors using, you know, such as if we see lichen planus automatically using the term violaceous. And, and I wonder, do, do you feel that language is crucial to this issue? And, you know, not considering our language has the potential to introduce bias into our sort of diagnostic processes? That is a very important point you've made. And I think, yes, we tend to be lazy, but also just not thinking through properly the language that we use in our clinical practice. And, you know, I'm not blaming dermatologists now because a lot of this is historical. You know, we look at how Western dermatology developed from the 18th century. It was primarily by dermatologists who were from Northern Europe, Europe with lightly pigmented skin. And the population that these dermatoses were described on also had 
predominantly lightly pigmented skin. So the problem now is that there is a disconnect between this historical origin of dermatology and the language which evolved from it, you know, to the actual reality of our practice. If you are in London, you know, you are dealing with an admixed population, people who have light, moderate or darkly pigmented skin. So it, there comes a point where we as dermatologists need to rethink the language that we're using so that we can better serve the diversity of the population that we are treating. And yes, you mentioned terms such as violaceous, also things like erythema. It's integral to a lot of the way that we describe dermatosis, but this is not something that you are necessarily going to appreciate in darkly pigmented skin where it can take on um, different appearances. So we need to start having this conversation and start looking at the language that we are using. And in fact, that's part of the work that Dermatological Lexicon Group we've done. We've started describing dermatosis in different skin tones so that we can actually start thinking about our language. But this is an ongoing work. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you should reference the term erythema, actually, because I'm one of the um, one of the, the the section editors for the forthcoming edition of Rook, and an effort has been made. The, the Rook textbook of dermatology for our listeners is the kind of major British reference text for dermatology, and we have expunged the term erythema from throughout the book and replaced it with with red where where appropriate. So, little small steps are being made. But I, you, you recently wrote um, a, a paper in the, the the BJD describing the um, and human uh, skin color scale, and I really loved the description in your introduction to this paper of our existing nomenclature being limited, imprecise, arbitrary, and impractical. And it struck me these terms are you know really just not consistent with the scientific process, and so you use that as your starting point. Um, to set about proposing a more objective way of classifying um, the the color the, the color of skin using the prototype of the EHSC scale, and I wonder if you could describe to our listeners a little bit about the methodology behind developing the scale, um, and maybe a little bit of a, an explanation as to what the melanin index is, because this whole scale rests on the concept of the the melanin index, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. So the Eumelanin Human Skin Colour Scale is a scale that the members of the Dermatological Lexicon Group we've proposed as a way of describing the diversity of human constitutive skin colour in an objective manner. So the first thing I have to say is that this group, we are a multidisciplinary group, so we weren't just dermatologists, but we had anthropologists, um, an expert in um, the genetics of skin pigmentation, a cosmetic scientist, a photobiologist, and we also consulted with historians and linguists. But basically we started off with monthly discussions to address what was required if we wanted to develop an objective scale for describing the spectrum of human constitutive skin color. And you know, one of the major discussions we had was trying to understand the cellular basis and the genetics of human skin pigmentation, and also the methodology, the in vivo methods to evaluate human skin pigmentation. And we came to the conclusion based on research evidence that in terms of human skin pigmentation, the dominant human chromophore 
is melanin or specifically eumelanin. And we used uh, a, 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 an objective measure called melanin index. So to explain melanin index, we need to step back to physics and um, what happens when you have light of a predetermined wavelength shining on an object. So skin is an object. We have a chromophore there, which we said is eumelanin. So if you shine light of a predetermined wavelength onto the skin, depending on the amount of the eumelanin you have, some of it will be absorbed, some of it will be reflected. And the amount of light reflected is measured by an, by an instrument called a skin reflectance instrument. And you can actually use that to determine a melanin index. A kind of um, gives you an insight as to how much melanin or specifically eumelanin you have in the skin. So what we then did was actually to look through the literature and do a systematic review of melanin index measured by skin reflectance instruments on various indigenous human populations. So we had a maximum versus a minimum. So someone who has albinism is zero. And the maximum we found was 120 and it was a specific ethnic group from, from Africa. And then basically what we did was then divide it into quantiles. And therefore we came up with the term eumelanin as the central descriptive term because eumelanin is the dominant human chromophore. And we basically said eumelanin low, the melanin index is less than 25. You have eumelanin intermediate low, which is between 25 to less than 50. Eumelanin intermediate, which is between 50 to less than 75. Eumelanin intermediate high, which is between 75 and 100. And then eumelanin high, which is 100 and above. So just in that way, you've actually developed ca categories with specific ranges in terms of their melanin index. And that's how we came about with this eumelanin human skin color scale. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's a really it's a really fantastic piece of work because, you know, not only is it, you know, entirely objective. So it is based, you know, you're talking of physics there. I was coming out in a cold sweat thinking back to secondary school, but you know, it's also entirely reproducible and presumably inter-observer variability should be reduced. And, you know, I know we're going to go on and talk about how we might standardise the, the, the measurement of, of this. But I, I was, you know, when I was reading this paper in the BJD, obviously I was looking at the, um, there was a, one of the figures had the distribution of all the countries and being Irish, I noticed Ireland was right at the, the top of it with very, very little um, melanin. Um, and I was, quite interested by this baseline distribution of, of pigments in different populations. And could you just explain to the listeners, because I had to think about it a little bit myself, why was it important to look at the pigmentation of indigenous populations when, as you referenced earlier, we've got somewhere like London, which is like a hugely now admixed population with lots and lots of variation. Um, so what, what was the importance of selecting just the indigenous population? This is a very important point, and this is something that we discussed, and actually we took a lot of direction from Professor Nina Jablonski, who is a member of this group, and she's an anthropologist. And when you talk about indigenous human um, populations in human biology, it's, there's a specific definition for this. So it refers to population that generally have not migrated or undertaken any major population movements in the last 500 years. So by focusing on the melanin index of well-referenced indigenous population, what we were trying to do was to try and 
get a baseline for human skin color diversity as it existed beyond the modern era of migration, industrialization, urbanization. We felt if we were going to talk about human skin color, we needed to start somewhere. And just starting with this baseline population was the first step. I think over time, yes, we are going to have to adapt and we'll, we will look at the current population as it is with admixture. But we just felt that the first step, we had to have a baseline for human skin pigmentation. And that's mm -hmm. why we looked at the indigenous populations. Yeah, no, it's it, it, it's really fascinating. And as you say, the beauty of having such an objective system is that when you come to revisit populations, let's say 20, 30 years from now, you'll be able to do it in a way that is truly allows true comparison. And you, you referenced the colleague uh, anthropologist who joined your group. And, you know, I think clearly there's a huge historical and sociological aspect um, to language. And I was fascinated to learn that you brought this multidisciplinary group together, including linguists and historians and the anthropologists. And what would you, could, could you summarize for the listeners just a little bit about what their perspective brought, brought to the work? I mean, you referenced the anthropologists already and how that influenced the decision to choose indigenous populations, but you know, the linguists and the historians, what did they bring to the table? Well, you know, when you start talking about human skin colour, you have to understand the history behind it. Skin colour, as we know, is determined by pigment in the skin, but there is a lot of history behind it. You have slavery, you have racism. So we felt that particularly when we were using language to talk about skin colour, it was really important that we moved away from this and we were actually able to make a positive impact on society by using language which was neutral, was based on science, was understandable and also was inoffensive. So this is where getting this historical input and linguist was really important because now we also know that our language actually determines our thought processes. So, you know, in terms of making a positive impact on society, if we were able to use language that really emphasized to people that, you know, skin color, it's just that, it's just skin color, then that would actually be a positive contribution to mm -hmm. society. So this is where they came in and gave the feedback about really concentrating on the term eumelanin, emphasizing to people that, you know, at the, at the end of it all, it's just the pigment. That's what skin color is. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, having their insight was really, was really useful. Um, especially as a dermatologist. Yeah, so bringing, I guess, some neutrality to the exactly. terminology rather than terms that are, are loaded. And in exactly. fact, of course, I think it's quite interesting because you need perhaps to give people a vocabulary to discuss these things, which is, you know, one of the brilliant things this this scale does and the other work of the lexicon group. So, you know, I, you know, I do think this is an incredibly imp impressive piece of work. You know, it'll be an enormous legacy um, to, to leave. But what aspirations do you and your co-authors have uh, with regard to developing the work further? Well, I mean, the major thing is how we can get people to incorporate and use this scale in their day-to-day -day clinical practice. 
And, you know, the skin reflectance instrument that has been used for this, it's cost quite a lot of money, about £3,000. People are not going to have this in their clinical practice. So we, we wanted to have a visual representation of the scale so that it can actually be user-friendly. Um, so the next stage is, is developing this. And this is where we've actually joined with an American company. Um, and I will show this device here called Spectra One, which is actually a very, very simple um, skin, well, it's a colorimeter, but it also gives you skin reflectance data. So you can see this here. And this actually costs $2.99. So it's actually wow. really, really cheap. And what you can do is actually simply put it on the skin and immediately there is an app. You would actually get a reading for skin reflectance um, data. But what we're trying to do is to partner um, with Variable Inc to actually develop a research protocol whereby we're actually going to collect data on um, quite a wide population of, of, of people with different skin colors. And actually, we're going to develop from this, we're going to develop an app or a software which will actually have the eumelanin human skin color scale so that you can either download this app and actually match it to your patient. Or if you want to buy one of these instruments, for instance, which is $2.99, you have it in your clinic. And actually, you can literally just measure, put it on your patient's, let's say, right up or in an arm. You get your data and it will actually tell you what the eumelanin human skin color scale is. It will match the color for you. And, you know, having this, I think, will be a game changer when it comes to assessing how individuals respond to UV, for instance. You know, you are now thinking about giving more nuanced sun protection messages. You know, I, I just think it opens up huge avenues. So this is the work that we're doing now developing the protocol and then hopefully engaging other researchers, et cetera, to come on board. And once we collect the data, we, we should be able to develop this software. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, as you say, the potential is enormous um, because uh, the the existing methods of classification uh, like the Fitzpatrick don't allow for that that nuance to be to be applied. Um, so yeah, well, all the very best, and thank you for sharing that that new development um, with us. And I wonder if I could just make a, a slight change of tack here. And you referenced at the beginning that your specialist clinic deals both with um, diseases of skin and of hair. And uh, you know, I, I this was this piqued my interest because I recently finished reading um, a book. Uh, by uh, a, an Irish author, a girl who grew up in Dublin called uh, Twisted, which is the tangled uh, history of um, black hair culture. And in it, she describes beautifully um, the history of Afro-textured hair. And she applies, um, she, she views it through a personal lens of having grown up in Ireland, which at the time was, you know, very ethnically poorly diverse. And I, I found the book fascinating but it also made me painfully aware um, that in the area of diseases of afrotextured hair my own lexicon is probably not um is not adequate and my cultural appreciation was very definitely lacking i'm sure it still is lacking but less so than prior to reading the book do you think this is another area a little bit like the skin where we need more education Definitely, definitely indeed. And it's the same with regard to our lexicon that we use. You know, when we talk about Afro textured hair, actually, this is a huge diversity of hair types. 
And there has actually been work on this. This was back in 2007, where hair forms was objectively measured, um, again, in different populations. And up to eight different types of hair was determined. But if you look at people of African ancestry, it wasn't all just one type of hair. There's a huge, there's a spectrum, even from type two up onto type eight hair. So there is that diversity there as well. The problem so far in terms of doing this objective measure is that it, it, it does involve a sort of research setting. So it's not something that can be easily done in the clinical setting, but it's certainly an area that needs to be addressed. And I will mention a name. There's a, a a young lady called Tina Lassisi, who was actually a PhD student of Professor Nina Jablonska, and she's actually has been doing work on this exact same issue about looking at the spectrum of morphology um, in different hair types. And again, it's a continuous spectrum. So yes, this is an area that needs that work. Need well, yeah, absolutely. And do you think we've recently in the UK had um, a relatively new dermatology curriculum developed? And I know that the EADV is hoping to develop more educational resources on these on these topics. Do you think our curriculum has developed sufficiently to address these needs? Or do you think there's more work needs to be done? Um, I think there's more work needs to be done. But you know, when I started getting involved in this area over about 15 years ago, it was a very different setting, scenario then. So looking at the progress we've made so far, I think we ought to be proud of ourselves, um, but there's still more work to be done. So when you look at the area of so-called Afro-textured hair, you know, we have conditions such as central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, where still, I mean, from the clinical setting, we are using anecdotal treatments. There's been no clinical trials in terms of how you manage this condition. You know, even when we look at basic things such as seborrheic dermatitis, um, a lot of the therapeutic shampoos we use, um, if you use it for so-called afrotextured hair, which might be prone to be more dry, you know, it causes a lot of hair breakage. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done within this whole area. But I think, you know, we are taking the right steps and hopefully we can further this. Mm. What do you, if you had to pick, say, one or two sort of top priorities for research gaps in the in the hair research domain, uh, what, what do you, I guess, CCCA you've mentioned, would that be sort of near the top? Any specific aspect of that that you feel we have a big research gap? Yes, so CCCA really right at the top. You know, we've done some preliminary work on the genetics of CCCA, but I would like to see more genetic work done. But instead of using broad terminologies such as Afro-textured hair or people of African ancestry, using objective criteria for hair morphology and linking that with genetic work on CCCA. And as I said to you, again, treatments for CCCA, bringing in more objectivity in terms of actual clinical trials, and that needs to be done. And then just in terms of our daily practice, in terms of sort of medicated therapeutic shampoos, you know, that will actually can be used by people with different hair types. And Actually, for myself, that's part of the work I've been doing with the cosmetic chemists, actually developing a, a therapeutic shampoo that will actually 
treat the scalp in terms of seborrheic dermatitis, but actually also has been formulated more for Afrotextured hair. So it conditions the hair shaft. So those are the sort of areas that I personally would be interested in, in terms of, of the hair. And I guess one final thing is education, you know, reaching out towards communities um, in terms of hair care practices. There's a lot of messages that still needs to get out there in terms of braids, particularly using braids and chemically relaxed hair and the risk for traction alopecia. So looking at preventative work as well that, mm -hmm. through education. And as you say, presumably we need to engage other groups in that, things like hairdressers and, you know, public health education, which, so from, 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 from our discussion, I suppose that we've achieved a lot, but still, uh, still a lot to do. And Ophelia, can I just say thank you so much for joining me today and for giving us such thoughtful, reflected upon answers to all these questions. Um, I know that there are many others in the dermatology community who have who joined me in having huge admiration for what you have achieved. Um, and I think this eumelanin and human skin colour scale is going to be an absolute game changer when it comes to um, how we describe skin in the futures in the future. So thank you so much, Dr. Datsi. And um, yeah, I will leave a list of the resources that we've referred to um, next to this podcast. So they can be accessed by listeners. And we hope you'll join us for the next EAB, EADV podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before you go, a quick favour. If you are a regular listener to our podcast, we would love to hear from you. Your feedback will help us improve the show and develop episodes that you are interested in hearing. To participate in the short survey, simply follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for your support. It means a lot. We look forward to hearing from you. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.